0: Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad you're joining us this week right here on KTRL 98.5 FM. We also stream at this time on tarletonradio.com. And just as a quick reminder, our shows each week are archived on SoundCloud. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow. And you can also download where you get your podcast uh, in case you miss an episode or you want to go back and look at previous episodes and the topics that we have covered. One of those topics that has been in our focus from time to time has been the border uh, between the U.S., the United States, and Mexico uh, for a number of reasons. And one is to really look at the complexity of this and that uh, what we often see in the news and, and uh, in the media is highlighting certain aspects of it, uh, but just doesn't really catch the complexity of what is going on uh, at our southern border. Uh, I know when I present this issue in class and focus on the economic aspects of it that that students often are, are, are just not aware of, of how much uh, trade, exchange, what crosses the border uh, on a daily basis that is so critical to Uh, people and uh, supply lines throughout this country, Canada and and North America. So we wanted to focus on on this, and I wanted to get someone uh, that has a a tremendous amount of expertise uh, in this area because there are critical issues that are happening now related not only to immigration but security as well. Uh, And so I invited this week for our show Dr. Tony Payan, uh, who is the Francoise and Edward Derrijo John Fellow for Mexican Mexico Studies and the Director of the Center for the United States in Mexico at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. Uh, we had the pleasure of having Dr. Payan here on campus a few years ago uh, to talk about some of these issues. And uh, for me individually, as a, not only as a, 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 a person, but also as a, as a political science. Uh, Uh, teacher to be able to to really hear the substance and to go in-depth on this issue. I immediately thought, you know, we need to have Dr. Payan on the show and discuss some of these issues. And just to talk a a little bit about his background before uh, we welcome him to the show, his research focuses primarily on border studies, particularly the U.S.-Mexico border. His work centers largely on issues of borderlands as areas of habitation, including the various conditions that affect life in liminal spaces. Uh, this includes cross-border flows, both legal and illegal of people, and contraband as well as border uh, govern- governance. He also researches problems affecting the relationship between uh, the US and Mexico, and two of his recent books to highlight, uh, one that was out uh, in, in uh, just in the, the past uh, a few years was the the three U.S.-Mexico border wars, drugs, immigration, and homeland security, and then one that's just recently come out, which is in Spanish, but will hopefully be translated, is an improvised war, the Calderon years and its consequences. Uh, So, Dr. Payan, it's great to have you on today and to discuss some of these very challenging, complex issues and to give our listeners really some, some substance here and perspective that helps us to uh, engage with issues that, as as we live here in Texas, wherever we live in the state, and we could say this probably about North America, uh, but these all these uh, aspects of the border have an impact on our daily lives, uh, as whether we realize it or not. And so, thank you again for joining us.
1: Thank you, Eric. Thank you for the invitation. It's really a pleasure to be here. I remember my visit to uh, to Tarleton, and it was a it was a quite quite a pleasant visit. And I'm always happy to to work uh, with uh, my colleagues over there.
0: Well, thank you, thank you so much. Well, just to get us started, uh, let's let's put this in context because some people, uh, what they see through the media, it's the immigration, it's children, it's uh, security. Uh, you know, in your research and and in your experience, that this is so much more broader and complex. And and so I I think it's great to hear from you what you see are some of the most pressing current and ongoing issues uh, at the U.S.-Mexico border uh, at the moment and, and what people should be aware of in trying to understand that complexity?
1: Yeah. Uh, I- indeed, I think uh, the relationship between Texas and Mexico is a very deep and broad relationship. It uh, uh, bridges many, many different uh, issues. Um, one of them, of course, uh, that is has been in the media uh, lately is, of course, the issue of immigration. Uh, now, the – Uh, The U.S. authorities are now calling them uh, encounters, because when you think about the kind of traffic that crosses the border, and you're talking about vehicles, trains, planes, automobiles, pedestrians, and and such, you're talking about uh, numbers upwards of 280 million crossings a year. Uh, That is uh, perhaps one of the most intense borders in the world. And most people don't realize, as soon as you move away from the border, you don't realize how many people, individuals, and vehicles cross the, uh, the Texas-Mexico border. Of course, 208 million for the entire border. California is also a very busy border, but I think two thirds of all those crossings are in Texas, all the way from El Paso to, to uh, Brownsville. And so it's a very intense relationship. And uh, obviously the one portion of all that traffic that gets uh, a lot of attention Uh, has to do with the undocumented uh, crossings. And uh, today, the uh, refugee seekers and asylum seekers, we're seeing a lot of those from Central America traversing through Mexico and on to Texas. Uh, The crisis right now has moved to South Texas. That's where most of them are right now. And of course, uh, you're uh, uh, talking about drug trafficking. That is one thing that continues. Fentanyl is the latest crisis, obviously. It began with marijuana, moved on to heroin, and then cocaine, and now fentanyl. So it has evolved over time. That also something that that is something that has played out on the Texas uh, Mexico border. But there's also a lot of very good things that are happening on the border, um, and I think all that traffic, for the most part, is really uh, legal uh, and orderly traffic. Uh, the U.S. binational relationship is a uh, an economic relationship of uh, some $620 billion a year. Uh, Two thirds of it uh, originate in Texas, come to Texas or go through Texas. And so the number of jobs that depend on that economic relationship is, uh, is really enormous. And the final thing that I wanna highlight because I think it's very important to Texas and I am sitting right now in Houston, it's very important to Houston and to the entire region really is uh, uh, trade in energy. Mexico now imports upwards of 80% of its natural gas from Texas, from the Permian Basin in West Texas, and of course, a lot of it in Houston, lots of gasoline from, from refineries in, in Texas going into Mexico. And that uh, there's, a, there's really just uh, an enormous amount of infrastructure that is now crossing the border uh, to fuel Mexico's manufacturing industry and uh, Uh, and uh, its needs for energy. Um, So the integration of energy, I think is one of the most untold stories. So to um, uh, kind of conclude this uh, first thing, I would put on the table the issue of the rule of law, security, and of course, uh, drug trafficking. I would put in the the, uh, issue of uh, human uh, uh, mobility, including uh, most of it, of course, orderly and legal, uh, hundreds of millions of crossings a year, I would put in there the issue of trade, which is robust, and I would put the issue of um, energy uh, integration today. So you can see that it's almost like a relationship between two countries.
0: Yes, I've often thought that that knowing the history a little bit of the history of the border and, and being that it's been more in, in modern times that it's been as restricted, you know, and, and as it is being. Uh, open for much of the history of Texas and how that impacted the development of culture and so forth. That 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 com- that complexity is still kind of represented today in in all of these issues that that you see. And and I think that that's that's one of the challenges that we see that's thrown into that mix is now we've had a change in presidential administrations. We uh, with uh, Joe Biden coming into office following the Trump administration and 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 thus a either different or similar approaches, I, I think this is the question that I wanted to ask you is that uh, in in this mix of transition, what has gotten kind of caught up in that is either uh, here are things that are held over from the Trump administration that, that, that uh, the new president and his administration is trying to change, or are there issues that they just, just you know, they're still in their first hundred days, they've just not been able to get a handle on uh, at this point.
1: That is a really interesting question and very, very current, and there is a definite difference in the binational relationship between the Trump administration and now the Biden administration. Uh, Many of us, before uh, President Trump took office, anticipated a very, very difficult relationship between uh, Mr. Lopez Obrador, Mexico's president, and President Donald Trump. Uh, Because both of them uh, exhibited kind of a penchant for nationalism, uh, America first and of course Mr. Lopez Obrador exhibited uh, a kind of a natural suspicion of US uh, uh, actions vis-a-vis Mexico and and, um, lots and lots of, uh, I guess, uh, doubts about the goodness of capitalism and the goodness of the markets and the private sector and so on. So we thought that it was going to be a very rough relationship. Surprisingly, though, uh, they found in each other sort of kindred spirits, and uh, Mr. Lopez Obrador very early on, uh, I guess, began to show a certain respect for Mr. Trump's approach. Um, Of course, Mr. Trump was not that interested in the complexity of the relationship. I think it was a more simple approach by national issues, and I think that's where, where he was. Uh, And Mr. Lopez Obrador found a way to establish some communication channels, political diplomatic channels, straight out to the White House and deal with that. So uh, a lot of the relationship was managed at that time by um, uh, Jared Kushner. uh, And uh, there was a kind of a one to one communication White House to uh, National Palace uh, in Mexico. And that was surprisingly smooth. Uh, and they collaborated on a lot of things, and of course, Mr. Uh, Trump got Mr. López Obrador uh, to aid uh, with uh, stemming the flow of refugees and migrants by deploying the Mexican National Guard to to the Mexican-Guatemalan border, and so it was very surprising to many of us how they found some sort of accommodation. It didn't necessarily resolve the big issues and the big problems. Drug trafficking was still going on. People were still coming to the border. Trade was still happening, but for some reason they found some sort of personal, person person president president kind of accommodation. Uh, and we thought, okay, once uh, Biden takes office, I think things are gonna get slightly better. Biden is a more institutional individual. Biden is a, a person that's more given to uh, 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 formal channels. Uh, he has a bigger picture of the binational relationship. And yet what we are finding now is that they're not getting along. Uh, Mr. Biden and Mr. Lopez Obrador don't see eye to eye on almost anything. And I think uh, Mr. Lopez Obrador made a, made a mistake. He didn't acknowledge, uh, he didn't recognize Mr. Biden's uh, electoral victory until the very last minute, middle of December, practically. Uh, and uh, he made all kinds of excuses for not doing so. And then of course, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, 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 Lopez Obrador is now in clear violation of many of the terms of the USMCA, which was negotiated by, by the uh, Trump administration. And of course, uh, uh, now Mr. Lopez Obrador is of course not making any commitments. We saw, for example, yesterday in the, uh, uh, the uh, summit on, uh, on the climate change that Mr. Biden is holding, that he didn't stay for Mr. Lopez Obrador remarks. And Mr. Lopez Obrador, contrary to what everyone is doing, uh, showed off uh, his uh, emphasis on hydrocarbons and uh, pumping more oil from the ground and, uh, and his own hydrocarbons-based projects. So he was completely off uh, message uh, and uh, Mr. Biden didn't stay there. Uh, and so uh, they don't see eye-to-eye on immigration. They don't see eye-to-eye on trade. They don't see eye-to-eye on energy. And so it's, we're now entering a very rough patch uh, nothing has happened yet, but clearly Mr. López Obrador and the Biden administration are having difficulty finding uh, traction in the relationship.
0: So, so this really leads into a, another question uh, one on, on our part, how many people really understand how mu- many of these challenges or certain issues have um, are connected to what is happening in Mexico and other uh, other countries in Central America uh, which we, you know, on average, we sometimes tend to ignore, you know, in the sense of, okay, well, uh, here, here's a problem we have in our own country, Not uh, thinking that, okay, there are things going on in other countries that are leading to uh, the, some of these, these challenges that, that leaders, uh, our president and others have to look at. And, and so I, I think one of the things that would help our listeners with this is uh, you've, you've talked about Mexico. You've talked about now. Here's a relationship that, that is not probably where it needs to be to address some of those things related to Mexico or Mexico as a as a partner. What what are other issues that we see that are that are creating uh, some of these challenges or have in the past and, and maybe continue to persist? Um, and and I know one of the aspect of this has been how presidential administrations and in U.S. foreign policy they've approached relations with other Central American co- countries? How, how are we c- either contributing to resolving some of these problems or not? And I didn't know where, where you saw that at the moment now, especially in this transition of, of presidents.
1: Yes, one of the things that I I think uh, we need to understand and to know is that Mexico is has got to rank among the top five relationships for the United States. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned the incredible uh, cultural, linguistic, and historic ties between the two countries, and Texas is no exception. Uh, Thirty-five to forty percent of Texans are Hispanic, and of course, most of them are of Mexican origin, and many of them have been here for generations. So clearly, there are some very, uh, very strong ties between the two countries, uh, and. Uh, it hasn't always been an easy relationship. There are some things, there's a lot of work to be done. And so I think one of the things that two governments have to do is to find ways to collaborate and to work together. Uh, Immigration is one of them. I would say that right now, most of the headlines are being occupied by immigration. And I say that Mexico has to be uh, at the top because Mexico is, if you think about it, a source of a lot of opportunity and wealth for many Texans and many Americans. Uh, it's, a, it's obviously something that's been there for a very long time, but it's also a source of a lot of problems, not just the drug trafficking that we mentioned, not just the undocumented immigration, but also the, the business opportunities in investment in energy and trade and the kind of prosperity that the bilateral relationship uh, elicits. And I think uh, we're to think about that combined and find ways to, to collaborate on both. Uh, Right now, also, Mexico obviously constitutes the number one route for many of the negative things that come to the United States. Drugs from Central and South America is obviously one of the big issues. Fentanyl coming from Mexico. A lot of the fentanyl is uh, uh, done with precursor chemicals coming to uh, Mexico from China, from Asia. And then they get transformed into drugs in Mexico and then they make their way to the border and then they cross into the United States. So there's obviously a long chain that the two countries need to look at and cooperate on. In the, in the uh, issue of immigration, uh, for a while, I think most of the immigration that was coming to the, to the United States was from Mexico. Um, and I'm talking about undocumented immigration. Uh, we, we may remember the eighties, the nineties, even into about 2007, And then Mexican immigration began to drop. It just kind of began to get all the way down to zero. In fact, just about five years ago, we used to talk about zero uh, net uh, zero immigration from Mexico. Uh, More people were leaving the United States than coming to the United States from Mexico. But at the same time that Mexican immigration went down, I think Central American immigration started picking up. Uh, And for the last 20 years, it's been picking up. And at some point it was most of the undocumented immigration. Now, how do Central Americans make it to the United States? Through Mexico. So clearly there are routes that are well established. There's organized crime behind uh, uh, these uh, Central Americans moving through Mexico, trekking North, coming up to the border. More recently, of course, we saw the caravans, the caravanization of immigration, uh, and, and the U.S. has to deal with it. And it has to elicit Mexico's cooperation on on, on immigration. And so there's, That pending issue, that, by the way, has been a major issue for the Obama administration, for the Trump administration, and also for the Biden administration. That is the one thing that I could say is has dogged every single of these three administrations. Uh, And without Mexico's collaboration, it's very difficult. When these immigrants are at our border, it's too late. It's almost too late. And so the strategy has to be a strategy of uh, detaining these, uh, uh, stemming these flows all the way to Central America. And of course, establishing, and I think correctly so, a plan for development of Southern Mexico and Central America. One more thing on this issue. Unfortunately, because Mexico has completely mismanaged its COVID-19 crisis uh, and its economy has collapsed by almost 10% between 2019 in 2020, what we've seen is a new uh, uh, uptick in Mexican migration. And so a lot of the encounters at the US-Mexico border, 42%, according to the latest numbers, are now Mexicans. So all of a sudden, Mexican migration is picking up again. Well, that can't be. We gotta find a way to collaborate with Mexico, see what's going on in Mexico, that many of these areas in Mexico are beginning to push a lot of people to the north, obviously the economic conditions. I think 95% of all the migrants that are coming to our border are really economic migrants. That's the reality of it. And so not looking at a serious plan for regional development and managing that from an economic standpoint, I think would be a mistake. And we're gonna see it over and over and over again. It's been tried before. I think the Obama administration tried that strategy before, but I don't think they did it well. I don't think they did it seriously. And I don't think they, invested the right resources, and they didn't recruit the private sector, I think Biden is trying to do that. We'll see if it works. It's now in the hands of Vice President Kamala Harris. We'll see if she manages to actually come up with something that will actually work.
0: We're we're speaking with Dr. Tony Payan of the Baker Institute on Public Policy at Rice University and talking about U.S.-Mexico border issues Texas is we're both here in this state and we uh, know uh, the, the impact of these issues on the state across you know economic and, and immigration and so on and uh, of course immigration and the security of the border is primarily the responsibility of the federal government but uh, th- this has an impact on Texas and and we've seen in, in budgets of the state how much a, a resources legislature after legislature that they've had to increase, in order to address that, and uh, so this is something that impacts people in Texas. Where there are state revenue, state tax dollars that are going to address uh, consequences or of, of some of the challenges and, and, and issues. And uh, I wanted to get your perspective on that. Not so much as you know. Again, this is a collaboration between the state and the federal government. But I think the emphasis here is that people are aware that. This does have an impact on the state of Texas, both in a positive way because of the economic traffic that is, is just tremendous. And talking about the the billions of dollars in exchange that, that that goes back and forth on a on a daily basis. And if people haven't been to uh, border towns to see how much of this you know goes on, I mean, they you just don't have the full perspective of it uh, that that you need. Uh, but uh, in terms of the state's role, because uh, that's been at odds at times, you know, with The federal government in needing you know either requesting more resources or uh we're having to deal with these consequences so the federal government needs to address uh these issues Uh, where do you where do you see that challenge right now in navigating kind of that state federal relationship knowing that that this this impact continues to increase on the state
1: yeah that's a very very good question as well and obviously i've had conversations with the uh, uh with all in austin with uh, different members of the uh, Texas Ledge, as well as uh, members of the uh, Abbott administration. And I can tell you that it's very difficult for them uh, to understand that they need to depoliticize uh, the uh, relationship with Washington. In 2015, they uh, passed a bill approving $800 million of Texas taxpayer money uh, to deal with the border. And they did the same thing in 2017. They didn't do it in 2019, as far as I can remember. Obviously, they're dealing with the issue of immigration today. Uh, the Texas legislation, as everybody, your, your listeners know, the meets only every, every other year. Uh, and they've actually uh, uh, taken a lot of the resources of Texans to dealing with the border. But they do it in a very limited way. Uh, they obviously give it to DPS to try to establish ways to detect immigration, human trafficking, and, and such. Um, I think one of the problems that I find with the Texas um, uh, uh, government in general is that they uh, they want to eat their cake and and, and have it too. Uh, they know and they understand the importance of the of Mexico to Texas and the binational relationship, and they know and they understand that uh, much of the economic well being produced by the binational relationship benefits texas and texans and they want to have an open border they want to have uh, the infrastructure to ensure that uh, uh, trade flows and and uh, tourism and shoppers and and all that flows uh, in an orderly uh, way but when it comes to specific issues like uh, drug trafficking and uh, human uh, trafficking i think that the texas legisl- legislature legislature in and the, in the um, the governor's office often takes an antagonistic position vis-a-vis the federal government. And, and that depends on the administration, right? For example, they uh, <clears throat> they were very much aligned with uh, uh, President Trump uh, during his administration, and they wanted the federal government to bear down on the border and to build a wall and to stop uh, uh, drug trafficking and, and, and immigrants and such, and they supported the, the Trump administration. And now that Biden is taking a more Uh, nuanced approach in his triage work on who can come in, who's getting deported, you know, ending the MPP program and sort of managing the the immigration uh, uh, crisis at the border differently, the the, the Abbott administration in Texas is obviously opposed to Washington, D.C. I think the reality is that, you know, this is being handled uh, at, at two levels that I think ought to be taken off the table. One is an ideological level, uh, they don't see eye to eye. I think Texas has this ambivalent position towards Mexico, and I think they—it's um, very obvious in the positions that they take and when they take them. And I also think that it's very ideological. You know, obviously there are some fears in Texas sometimes uh, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, you know lots of immigrations and immigrants coming to Texas, despite the fact that immigration has been very good to Texas. Not just from within the United States, but from other countries, it's a it's becoming a very diverse state, and so I think the uh, state government has not really done a very serious uh, study looking at uh, all the immigration issues and all the trade issues and all the infrastructure issues and all the uh, public safety and security issues, and then taking them comprehensively and establishing a plan, and then taking it to Washington and agreeing on certain actions and working together on that, regardless of whether you have a Republican or a Democratic administration. I think we're still very much filtering in Texas, our positions uh, through a political lens. And that of course means that we're not coordinating our actions. We're not achieving what we need to achieve. Uh, and we're having trouble really working with the federal government. And I think we see, we're see we going to see it uh, under the Biden administration, especially as we enter a new electoral season in Texas. That's going to be very
0: difficult. Well, and it used to be, you know, you can go back uh, 20 years ago or so. I remember, uh, and I think it was our our and system chancellor when he was comptroller, uh, but you would have regular reports put out that, uh, showed the value of, of, of immigrants in Texas in terms of, of certain labor sectors and, then what they, they contributed as well to the overall economy of the state compared to cost, you know, in terms of services and so forth. And part of that was designed to, to say, hey, we, we do need a certain amount of immigration. You, you, you don't see that in the conversations anymore uh, of, of, uh, at that level, it, it, it seems to be marked by this and either antagonism or we've got to do something about it rather than uh, we're a country, not just in Texas, but throughout that has thrived because of immigrant uh, populations and groups and and uh, uh, addressing various uh, uh, needs been a, a part of that American experience. And uh, uh, it, it just seems like that that focus, like you're saying, the focus on the on the value uh, of, of this that far outweighs uh, some of the, the what's perceived to be these great challenges uh, is, is significant. And I, I think that's a challenge in communicating that today in this political environment. I don't know if you see that in your engagement with, like you said, with politicians, those in the legislature, or as well with, with others who are, are, are trying to engage with these issues.
1: Yeah, uh, recently at the Center for the U.S. and Mexico at Baker, uh, we did a study on the value of immigrants. In fact, we decided to focus on the undocumented immigrants. You know, in uh, Texas, we have uh, around 1.6 million undocumented immigrants. It's a substantive number. It's quite important. And many of them are in, in uh, Houston, in Dallas, uh, in San Antonio, the big cities, right? There are very few of them really in the rural areas unless they work in the agricultural sector, the cattle Sector and the ranching and all kinds of things like that. Most of them are really in the in the cities, and we try to uh, follow a, a uh, methodology that the state of Texas imposed in a previous study in 2006, looking simply at the contributions of immigrants, and I'm talking about the undocumented immigrants, and uh, and their uh, their contributions to the state in terms of taxes, in terms of wealth uh, uh, production, and so on and also the cost because obviously they don't have insurance and so sometimes they uh, you know they wait until they're very sick before they show up in the emergency room Uh, and so that is most costly uh, that that healthcare is very costly and so that uh, I I think we we took into account all those different things uh, right the use of infrastructure that they have and the use of schooling and all kinds of things like that. Uh, including even um, the cost of detention in uh, jail when they're uh, detained by the state of Texas in in county jails and and so on. And uh, we, we found a plus. So even undocumented immigrants are contributing to Texas. So what we need to do is acknowledge that they add value and push as a state, as Texas, for a system that will take advantage of these immigrants, perhaps in a kind of a circular system, a kind of a guest worker program, where a lot of these people can come into Texas, work, offer their services, uh, get their savings done, and then go home. It used to be called the Bracero Program. Uh, Between 1946 and uh, 44, and um, I think 1962, we used to have a Bracero Program in Texas. And of course Texas benefited enormously and most Texas ranchers and employers benefited from that labor and it was a very orderly labor. It was a circular. I think it's time to reconsider those kinds of things because they do leave a lot of good stuff in Texas. They produce wealth, they pay taxes. Obviously they can't escape, nobody can escape taxes. Uh, And so uh, I think that Texas ought to view immigration as such And then push the federal government to reform the system in favor of what is good for Texas. And I think when when we just simply engage in the political game of, you know, you're Democrat or Republican, I don't like you, I don't wanna work with you, you're the problem, uh, you know, we're the solution or vice versa. I think we don't stop, look at the numbers, look at the facts, look at the statistics, and then say, this is the kind of system that we need. If you were to add all the legal immigrants, that come to Texas in the uh, technology sector in the medical sector, for example, here in Houston, in the research sector and on and on, you would find that uh, immigrants are very, very good to Texas and open uh, state. Of course, we want legal uh, and orderly immigration and human mobility. Um, what th- I think what, what is really the problem is that we haven't found the kind of system that will take advantage of this kind of circular uh, migration workers coming into Texas. But they, but in general, I think immigrants are a plus And what Texas needs to do is define its interests and push its legislative delegation in Washington to establish a system that is good for Texas. And a lot of that labor is very good for Texas. You can talk to um, people in the construction sector and they will tell you that 80% of our workers are Hispanic, 50% are undocumented. We need that labor. We have to find a way for them to come in, do our buildings, our homes, uh, and then uh, uh, go home after that, you know, take, take their, their their earnings and, and go take them to their families and spend time with their families and come back next year, and so on. That is a system that we have not agreed upon, and I think it would do uh, us Texans a lot of good if we
0: found a way to do it. Along that lines, you, we mentioned the vice president and, and her role in uh, her relations with Mexico, uh, President Biden in the uh, climate change summit this past week and re-engaging there uh, so there are a lot of issues on the on the table of course it's early on uh, we're, we're right at almost hundred days uh, but do you see any any policy movement in any areas related to that uh, to the the border and the relationship with uh, with Mexico that that uh, uh, may have the chance of coming to fruition. And in in the Biden administration, I know as political scientists, we don't always try to predict, uh, we don't try to predict the future. We study, you know, what's what's happened. Uh, But I'm sure as you, as you, in your work, uh, you're tracking some of those critical policy issues and how they might be addressed. I mean, of course, for all of us looking at immigration policy with the challenges that we've had in any kind of uh, reform in that area, uh, and whether that's something the Biden administration will try to to tackle or or not. But I I didn't know if there were other areas here that you see are in the forefront that may get some attention uh, in the months ahead. Well, unfortunately, uh, to refer to another uh, blog piece that I wrote
1: on this very issue, I see a coming confrontation. And I think we saw it yesterday during the uh, uh, summit on climate change. Um, uh, Mr. Lopez Obrador was completely, uh, as uh, French diplomats would say, a cote de la carte. uh, completely off topic uh, you know you don't go to a climate change and then show off how you're building a refinery uh, how you are uh, uh you know finding more oil deposits and that you're poised to exploit them and to pump more oil and 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 such i mean he was completely off uh it was like the one message that was off and of course uh, he has just pushed a reform on energy, which is very damaging to Texas interests uh, when it comes to electricity and when it comes to gas and when it comes to oil and uh, uh, and energy exchanges between Texas. Uh, and uh, uh, I think Mr. Lopez Obrador at the end of the day uh, uh, is also neglecting the issue of security. Uh, uh, he, he doesn't really care. We saw uh, a small town in Michoacan um, uh, Aguililla, Michoacán, this state in Mexico and kind of Western Mexico, and we saw or, organized crime, one of the most, one of the bloodiest cartels in Mexico today, go in the town, take the town, practically, as if, it, if they were a paramilitary group. We know that they're dedicated to a lot of the mafia activities, including drug trafficking, and when they took the town, the Mexican National Guard and the army withdrew from the town. They simply let them have the town because Mr. Lopez Obrador learned the wrong lessons from the Calderon administration, the book that you mentioned earlier. And and his lesson was, I don't want to confront organized crime because we saw what happened when when President Calderon, uh, back in 2006, 2012, faced down organized crime. What we had is a huge rise in executions and murders and killings in Mexico, and so I don't want to do it. And in the process of not doing so, he's opening more and more spaces for organized crime. He's opening more opportunities. He's leaving more vacuums open for organized crime. That can be good for the United States because as Mexico withdraws from facing down organized crime, these groups are going to control more territory, more activities. There'll be more human trafficking. There will be also uh, more uh, drug trafficking. And of course, that ends up right here in Texas, in the state. So when you look at all these issues from trade to energy to public safety and security to immigration, I think uh, the Biden administration and the Lopez Obrador administration in Mexico are in a collision course. And I think it's going to be a very rough four years unless Mr. Lopez Obrador reflects a little on what his administration is not doing well and then begins to accommodate American interests. And at this point, I don't I don't see that he even understands what he needs to do. So the very first thing that Biden is gonna need to do is to send a good ambassador to Mexico. And I think that's gonna be Ken Salazar, former uh, Senator from Colorado, uh, Mexican American, who's gonna, it looks like he's gonna be the one uh, to be sent to Mexico to educate the Mexican government on what the U.S. wants them to do. And of course, because Mr. Lopez Obrador is so reluctant to listen to anyone, they're likely to clash and the relationship will will just limp along over the next four years. And whoever comes after Mr. Biden and Mr. López Obrador will have a lot of work, a lot of reconstructing of the binational relationship because a stable, democratic, peaceful, prosperous Mexico is extremely good for Texas and for the United States. The last thing we need is a failed state overrun by organized crime, and completely uh, uh, inefficient and uh, with a failing economy just south of the border. If that happens, we will feel it, and we will see it in Texas and the United States.
0: Well, thank you very much for that engaging analysis and kind of looking at some of the challenges that may be before us, and we've been speaking with Dr. Tony Payan of the Baker Institute at Rice University, and I appreciate your time today and coming on and helping our uh, listeners really understand the complexity of some of these issues, and and what uh, what what may be uh, looking ahead, trying to understand where these are in terms of uh, policy formulation, both in Texas and uh, at the the federal level as well. Something that, as I've said over and over again on this program, uh, border issues, relationships between us and Mexico, they impact us. Uh, so much in this state, and we need to be aware of that and and how our governments are addressing those. So thank you again for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Uh, Thank you to your uh, radio listeners as well for uh, paying attention to what we're trying to say. So thank you, Eric, for the invitation. Pleasure to be here.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back for more On Politics.
2: Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along.
0: Tea for
2: Texas. Tea for Texas is a
1: Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker.
2: Find a new episode every Thursday morning, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and we're glad you're joining us today. Uh, That was a great interview with Dr. Tony Payan on border issues, and we hope you'll go back and listen to that if you uh, missed that today as part of the show, and you can do that on SoundCloud. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow, or you can download where you get your podcasts and listen to each episode. And I will also uh, post some related articles uh, on uh, the things that we talked about uh, so that uh, you can do some additional reading. And it's so important, so critical as we were talking to be educated about what is going on at our southern border, uh, about the U.S.-Mexico relationship, about the impact of all these issues on the state of Texas. Uh, There's two things here with the time I have left today in this last segment that I wanted to discuss, and one will be a little bit of a preview that will go more in depth uh, next week, Uh, but one is I wanted to refer you back to a project, a swing voter project uh, that uh, we talked about on the show uh, during the election campaign this past year, and that is the Engageous uh, Swing Voter Project. That's E-N-G-A-G-I-O-U-S. And if you go to engageus.com, you can uh, connect with the resources they have there. And the reason why I'm pointing this out is to give attention to resources out there that help us to look at the political dynamics that are going on in our country, especially as we start now heading into a midterm election cycle. And as, as we talked about last week, there are people lining themselves up to run for president. There are people who are already raising money to look at Uh, That potential, uh, which again, as we move closer to a a midterm election, will become more critical in looking at what may happen in 2024. And in the world of politics, especially in our country, you know this doesn't stop. We have an election. We're not even through the first 100 days of the Biden administration, and there's already a a focus uh, on this. And so recently, so what they do with the Engages project is. Before COVID, they were going around the country bringing groups of swing voters, people who voted one party, one election, and then one a different party the next election. So moving back and forth. So this would have been uh, Clinton to Trump uh, voters. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, they would have been uh, Obama to Trump voters, uh, or uh, they would have voted uh, Republican candidate and then uh, voted for um uh, uh, the Democrat in the next election. So swing voters that swing between elections uh, really because this is a group that does have an impact on election outcomes. Uh, they are a group that is, is growing in our country, and so Engageus is giving uh, attention to this. And I just wanted to play a quick uh, clip here uh, from their most recent engagement, with they, which they do via Zoom now, related to uh, Trump and Biden voters talking infrastructure, uh, cancel culture and corporations and politics, mainly about infrastructures is a part we'll listen to uh, because uh, I think this is something that I want to refer you to to maybe go back from time to time again to see what is happening in among swing voters across the country and how they perceive uh, various issues. And it doesn't always align to a particular party or ideological message. You'll see that they are truly swing voters because they they move back and forth on different issues. Uh, so this is Rich Tao, who is the uh, uh, the coordinator here, who runs Engageus, uh, having a conversation with swing voters uh, on infrastructure.
2: I think it's an enormous amount of money, and the question is, where is that money going to come from? Hello. This month, we talked to 13 swing voters from key swing states. We asked them about infrastructure, cancel culture, and the role of large corporations in the political process. Let's start with infrastructure. These Trump Biden voters need three assurances. First, the infrastructure bill has to attract bipartisan support in Congress and can't come just from Democrats. Secondly, they don't want to see any more borrowing to pay for this bill. They think that America should pay for it. And third, it's wealthy Americans and large corporations who should be paying the tab, not them personally. By a show of fingers, how many of you would say it matters a lot to you, matters a lot, that any infrastructure bill be supported by both Democrats and Republicans in Congress, as opposed to only Democrats? Who would say that that's very important to you? All seven of you, okay? Sherilyn, why?
0: Because I think without agreement on both sides. It's just going to spin and spin and spin and nothing will get done. I already think it's kind of he's kind of biting off more than he can chew. It's a broad scope. I think it should be a narrow more narrow of a scope. And if you don't have the other half buy in, it'll take forever and not not happen.
2: By a show of fingers. How many of you support borrowing money to pay for infrastructure? I mean the government borrow money for infrastructure who supports that show of fingers. none of you why not <laughs> we're hurting like trillions of dollars of debt uh, I I can't, I can't support any more borrowing okay other reasons Daniel you were smiling when I said that why uh, just because if if we were to just tax corporations at what they do like Amazon Amazon doesn't pay any taxes, if we were to use just that money alone would solve so much. Um, so when you have yeah. when you have options like that available, it doesn't make any sense why you would have to borrow when you can have people just pay their fair share. I think so, because they're the ones who benefit more than we do. They're the ones that are making the outrageous uh, earnings every year while the individuals like us are struggling, you know, having issues with paying your rent during this pandemic. Just alone in this pandemic, all these corporations made billions of dollars. How many of you think President Biden has done a good job of explaining that he intends for this legislation to be paid for mainly by large corporations and wealthy individuals? So none of you.
0: all right, I'll stop there, but there's more on the Engageous website on a lot of different issues. And I, I offer this to you because it is insightful in being able to see where people are, especially voters who move back and forth. It might be more engaged with specific policy issues. So this group, as he said, it was uh, these are swing voters who voted for Trump in 2016. They voted for Biden in 2020. Uh, and, and again, these, these voters that move back and forth, uh, often give us insights into the electorate as a whole, and uh, seeing what are some of the the issues and concerns that are out there. So we'll we'll come back to this some as we as we move forward. Thinking that you know it is a, a very helpful in understanding some of these critical issues as people perceive a presidential administration and what they're doing on specific issues. Before we wrap up the show today, I do want to give a little bit of attention. Uh, to the laws that have been passed in Florida and Oklahoma uh, that protect drivers who run over uh, protesters. So these laws are creating quite a bit of stir here. Uh, They're being called anti-riot laws uh, in order to uh, address some of the concerns about uh, what we've seen with protests in order to manage them uh, to uh, especially protests that that snarl traffic that cause uh, uh, issues on major roadways. Already the, the law in Florida is being challenged in the courts. Uh, and I think what we'll probably see out of this, because this is going to be a multi-state uh, outcome in terms of new policies, that this most likely will wind up in the federal courts and maybe even in the Supreme Court eventually uh, in that Uh, We're looking at First Amendment rights here, the right of of free speech. Uh, uh, Protest has always been seen as connected to that for people to be able to gather and to express their views, although we've applied the laws and we've uh, policed these things in different ways throughout our history. uh, But what is being seen in this current political uh, context uh, is uh, that it's becoming a, a, a very partisan issue. Uh, where again, one side, just like with voting, where we were talking about, is it voting security uh, or is it voting restriction? Uh, we're seeing this as taken two different ways, uh, uh, focused on, okay, riots, this getting out of hand, this creating problems for people, uh, businesses in the area where these you know protests may happen if they do get out of hand, uh, blocking of traffic and creating other challenges and issues for law enforcement, uh, then to also the other side of it, where people are saying, "Oh no, this is an infringement on First Amendment rights to assemble, uh, to to offer a speech uh, against government or on certain issues in order to try to get attention and to get them uh, addressed." So, what we've seen now in just the last week, uh, the Florida uh, Florida sorry law uh, that that was passed, uh, where some are saying that the that these laws are meant to protect the public, to protect those who might be impacted negatively uh, by these kinds of events. Where others are saying, well, no, uh, as as the lawsuit against the law in Florida says, it's an attempt to silence uh, movements and other civic organizations uh, that want to use their First Amendment rights uh, to uh, uh, address critical issues uh, in in society, issues that governments are dealing with whether it's on the state or uh, the federal level so you're getting some big players that are coming into into this that will be engaging with it uh, everywhere from of course states themselves to the aclu to uh, first amendment institutes and organizations uh, that are trying to uh, uh uh Uh, see that this may be, uh, they're saying, a slippery slope. You know, we're moving down a slope here that may lead to even further restrictions on uh, freedom of speech and freedom of assembly as uh, governments try to address some of this. So this is something I want to get into more detail next week. I've been looking at the Florida law. I want to look at the Oklahoma one as well. And to give you more context for this, because we may also see this in Texas and in other places as well. And this may be one that will be in the forefront uh, in the courts. So if you've not heard about this, get online, uh, look it up, uh, learn a little bit about what's happening here, and something that that in addition to the voter uh, issues and what's being addressed. may be very much in the forefront of legislative bodies, but also in the media and in our courts. So I want to thank you for joining us today uh, right here on Politics with Eric Morrow. Uh, We broadcast each week Sunday at noon right here on KTRL 90.5 FM and streaming on tarletonradio.com. Join us here each week Uh, for engaging interviews, issues of interest, both in Texas, in local government in the state, federal and international from time to time as well, as we try to keep very important issues, critical issues and resources in front of you to help you be engaged with what's going on in the world around us, how government is impacting your life, policy issues that are critical and important that you need information. So that's right here on Politics each week with Eric Morrow. Thank you for joining us today. We will be on the air again next week and we'll focus on President Biden's first 100 days.
1: Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from me, Taylor Welch,
2: and me, Carissa Cole. Find more
0: great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you
2: get your podcasts.